Join me on my mission to create a new tomorrow as I chat with industry experts, elite athletes, thought leaders, and government officials about how we activate our vision for a better world. We may agree and we may disagree, but I'm not backing down. I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I am your host, Ari Gronich, and today I have with me Jeff Lee, and I've been looking forward to having this conversation for a long time. Jeff is a two-time tour in Afghanistan. He's an ultra-marathoner. He's in the political arena, and that's the thing that I really want to talk to him about. But this is a guy who's recognized as a thought leader as in political advocacy. Um, he's been featured on Politico Magazine, New York Times, USA Today, Washington Post. I mean... Fox News, all kinds of stuff. But Jeff, I'm going to let you tell a little bit more about yourself and where it is that, you know, you feel like your history has met your present and is like pushing your future forward. Thanks for having me, Ari. Uh, flattery will get you everywhere. So thank you for that very warm introduction. Uh, you know, my when I talk about my life, I, I really have to take the time to talk about my parents, first and foremost, not just because they loved each other very much, and here I am, but also because, uh, you know, it's their bravery and passion that allows me to be an American today, right? So they were Vietnamese refugees after the fall of Saigon 46 years ago. Yeah, they were refugees in, you know, Thailand and the Philippines and escaped Vietnam and communism on a 32 foot raft. So, you know, when they made it to the United States in 1981, after six years, uh, a year later, I was born. And that came with great rights, but also responsibilities. And growing up in Southern California, um, my parents had a gardening company. And it's important to highlight because it was my first job. My first job at eight years old was being the gardener's kid and mowing lawns on the weekends. I learned two things about this. Number one, manual labor sucks and education is really important. Two, people treat you based on what they think of you, based on what you do. And so understanding that we're only equal in concept, but maybe not in reality is an important lesson learned at a young age. I say all that because a lot of my professional and personal life was driven on this understanding. And I would break my life chapter into three chapters and we can talk about each of them. Yeah, um, yeah the first uh, was a chapter in the international affairs arena, right? I got to work and travel in 85 countries around the world. Uh, there was so much to see and do, including, you know, what you referenced was, you know, my time in Afghanistan, um, you know, working in the international development economic space, but also working in the human rights and advocacy space. Um, and obviously recent events in Afghanistan uh, were quite tragic and horrible. We can talk about that. Yep. Um, after that experience, it made me ask fundamentally, um, what was I doing for the country back home? And so the second chapter of my life was in politics, but you know, really with a stronger emphasis in state and local politics. Uh, I got to work for the governor of California specifically for five years. Um, uh, Jer Jer <laughs> yes, great, great point for Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown, the governor of California. So not the current governor of California, the previous governor of California. Right. Um, and which for me was fascinating because when Jerry Brown was governor of California in the 70s and early 80s, my parents arrived here. So it was so fascinating that their son could be advising the governor of California, the same governor who was governor when they landed. So think about that from a 
you know, the world is an interesting circle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was really proud of the work that I got to do in California. As you know, I mean, California, you know, covers some really interesting issues in technology and innovation. California is crazy state. There's a lot of stuff to talk about, right? Yeah. Fires, floods, crazy state. Um, you know, um, Silicon Valley, Hollywood. Uh, I mean, your almonds. I mean, there's so much stuff that comes from there. And also what's not talked about, the largest veteran community in the country and 30 military installations that are sort of the backbone for our efforts in the Pacific, not talked about, but it's very important. Think about not just from a national security perspective, but also from a local economy perspective, having those installations there. Those work I really got to work in really proud of. And now in this phase, I work in technology uh, and I'm really focused right now on housing, um, and really focused on reducing barriers for people to um, get to affordable, safe housing uh, at a time where you have potentially millions of people being evicted right. through no fault of their own. So, you know, for me, my goals have really been focused on trying to support and empower the most marginalized at a time where the haves and have nots grow. Uh, what can we be doing to be smart and smart and thoughtful about this and not throw the baby with the bathwash? Absolutely. So so let's let's start to unpack some of this stuff a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to go back. I actually had a I had a girlfriend long time ago. She had a tattoo on her butt that looked like a, a shipping label. It said made <laughs> in Vietnam. And oh, my God. She had been a refugee who had escaped on a boat. Mm -hmm. um, like a rowboat almost to, yep. to Thailand. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I, I find that interesting because I know what it's like for what it was like for her parents mm -hmm. who, who did the escaping, you yeah. know, and, and all of the, what they faced and possibilities that they faced in order to escape a place. And, and where I'm going to draw the parallel in a minute is not necessarily to the Vietnam, but it's to Afghanistan mm -hmm. and all the refugees that yep. are, are being forced, you know, to leave their home. And so we'll, we'll draw that parallel as well. Mm -hmm. But what I want to get to at, at the first is, is that eight-year-old boy yeah. who is being aware of the fact that your equality is not necessarily equal in the eyes of the people. So I wanna just kind of unpack this, this one little bit for a second. Let's talk about equality and if there should even be anything called equality. And if sure. so, what would it look like to you? So let's just- Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. So under the law, there is supposed to be equality, right? In society, that's certainly not necessarily the case. There is something very important, which is equity. Equity is important. Equanimity, right? yes. Yeah, equanimity too. Those concepts are very important. And so I believe in equality of, there's an equality of, opportunity and potential outcomes are different okay outcomes sure. are outcomes but we also have to acknowledge that uh there are some folks that are born on third base there are some folks that are born on first base and there are some folks that are selling hot dogs in the stands right right it's it is different um and so where you start does affect how you play the game 
right? Like if you're playing Monopoly and you got Boardwalk and Park Place to start, it probably affects the way you probably can maneuver. And uh, I can tell you that my, you know, my parents coming to the United States with nothing, I can't say we had Boardwalk or Park Place. I think we were just happy to have a, have a, a token on the board, right? We were happy to be here. And very much, at least in an Asian American Pacific Islander angle, particularly a Vietnamese American one, there's one very much filled with gratitude, a gratitude that we get to be here and that uh, we get to chase the thing that you and I have talked about, which is the American dream. Right. The American dream, though, isn't the dream for your parents. The American dream is the possibilities for your children. That's what that is. Because, you know, very few, you know, these refugees you, you cited in Afghanistan, they're here or like are being resettled they are not going to be the direct beneficiaries of the American experience and the opportunities here. Their kids will be. That is the American dream. Um, the parents will have to live with the trauma of what they lost and what they'll never get back. And I know we, we, we discussed like, oh, how lucky these Afghans are to make it. Um, the survivor's guilt, that's real. And also they're separated from their family, their friends, their loved ones, everything they've ever known. So they're, they're always going to be not whole. So I think there's this notion when we talk in society about like, oh, these refugees are taking advantage of things. Oh, they're just trying to find a way to, you know, further themselves. No, it's a last resort. It is a last resort. I mean, you think about what makes you happy. It's your community. It's the people around you. It's the sense that you're living in your skin. You know, and when you funny. come, yeah. it's funny to me. As you're talking, I, I have I had a thought, right? Mm -hmm. How many people do I know that I grew up with who have never left the place that we grew up? Quite a few, I bet. Quite a few. Quite a few. And how difficult it is for somebody just to willingly choose to go move somewhere, even just out of city, not, yeah. not just out of state, but out of city. Yeah. You know, um, how many people do I know that have lived on the same block, mm -hmm. you know, as their parents lived and their grandparents lived the same block, the same mm -hmm. neighborhood. Yeah. And when I hear somebody say, you know, these people are, are they're being forced. What what I want to see happen, right? And when, when I hear you say they'll never be whole, what I want to see happen is block parties. I want to yeah. see, you know, the 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 50s again when we welcomed the world, mm -hmm. right, onto our blocks, into mm -hmm. block parties, and we actually understand and listen and, and question, like, what was that experience that you went through so that people can become whole? Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. I think this, first off, I mean, if you look at the founding of America, America is a nation of immigrants and refugees, by the way, seeking refuge uh, in the only scenario of options left, right. right? If you look at the history, right? We focus so much on the Mayflower. There are many other Mayflowers for many other generations that we never talk about. It's not as luxurious, right? But the reality is that you, we have a culture that um, has a connection to cultures of many, and part of our strength, if you talk about from innovation, what makes America so powerful is that we have these viewpoints, perspectives, skills, and abilities from all around the world that come here, the best of the best. Right. And then they use those talents and skills to create things that change the world. 
that creates that new tomorrow, right? If you look at, um, you know, for example, let's just talk about, let's say the vaccine, for example. One of the things that people don't talk about who, who worked on the science of these vaccines, right? The research and development were on the backs of immigrants doing lab, lab and bench science. So, you know, America benefits from those talents. Um, and to your point, we have to recognize it takes a whole of society to put people in the best position to succeed. They deserve to have an at-bats, whether they strike out, whether they get a single, I, I couldn't tell you. So, so hold on a second. Let, let's no. again. I'm gonna. I like to unpack some of this. Stuff. Yeah, sure. So I don't agree. Okay. With the premise that all people should have an equal starting ground. Okay. Right. And and I say that because I'm gonna have a different brain than you. I'm mm -hmm. gonna have different set of skills than you. I'm gonna have abilities that you will never have okay you will have abilities that i will never mm -hmm. have and i disagree with the philosophy of any possibility of starting from an even ground now here's here's to say if i had a hundred million dollars mm -hmm. okay my brain would know who i need to put that with yeah so that i could get things moving forward somebody else's brain that's given a hundred million dollars is going to spend it on junk that's not going to move anybody forward or anything forward mm -hmm. another person is going to spend that hundred million totally different right they're going to actually like maybe go to classes and learn and get a skit gain a skill and do good in the world so money or resources or family like you might have a much larger family of resources than i have but my family might have more money. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe that there's ever going to be a time possible in which we have an equal starting point or equanimity in relationships. Mm -hmm. We could have well, equanimity in other things, but... Well, I think historically that's right. I mean, again, we, like we talked about, my... My family's history in the United States is 39 years, right? So the starting point is different, right? Versus, um, you know, someone that's been here since their family's been here since the 1840s. Well, I think we can agree that's different and totally agree that there's different skills and abilities. I think it's the case of how do we best put people in positions, um, you know, to fulfill their talents and potential. I agree with you. Not everyone is a, not everyone's gonna be a starting pitcher. Not everyone is going to be um, even playing that sport. I, I totally agree with you. Right. So, but so, I but but I do think on the services part, like to the thing you talked about for society, right? Uh, having that openness to learn, to understand, that benefits everybody, and that benefits uh, a stronger country as a whole. Yeah, but also what I I guess what I what I want to get to. Oops, I hit. Buttons. <laughs> Sometimes buttons get hit. Uh, <laughs> I guess what I want to get to is, can we agree on a solution, right? Mm -hmm. That starts us from a place of maybe not equanimity, mm -hmm. but at least not fight or flight, right? So having 
somebody not necessarily have to worry about survival skills, survival mm -hmm. instincts, surviving in general. Mm -hmm. And that's where I believe that if we could get away from the nervous system being triggered into this fight or flight response constantly, right? Meaning we give people a way to have shelter, have clothes, have food, have the things that are necessary to sustain a life. That starting point, at least, is a starting point that will allow people to, to move in a quicker fashion, right? Yeah. But to your point, at eight years old, you started a job. At mm -hmm. seven years old, I started a job. Yeah. Right. Mine was paper boy and we yeah. did lawn and we did lawn mowing for like five bucks a, a lawn, three <laughs> bucks a lawn, I think back then. Yeah. I was going to say it was a pretty low rate for, yeah, I it was like say. three bucks a lawn and I, yeah, you know, it, prices did, have changed a little. Right. And so here's the other part of that. So I'm going to be my own devil's advocate on this. Okay. The struggle is what made you who you are, right? The having to work that early, the being forced into an, a non-equal position, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas somebody who's wealthy, whose kids are wealthy, they don't have to do anything. They don't have mm -hmm. to learn. They don't have to think. They don't have to, and they'll lose anything that they're given pretty darn quickly. Hmm. So there's, there's the, the dichotomy in my, in my head. Mm -hmm. Can we give people an equal footing ground as far as like survival? And will that have an opposite effect of taking the struggle away that makes people really forged and strong? Yeah, I, so I think, you know, if you think of that, you know, that Maslow's hierarchy, right? So if you reduce the existential crises, then it can allow people to forge and foster in the other ways. Um, I think there's three factors I think about. First is, um, you know, just personality, right? I think there's the things that are born innately, like you were talking about earlier, Ari, that is a factor. Uh, the second one I think is really helpful is um, exposure to other people. So, I mean, if you think about, you know, everyone remembers their third grade teacher, right? Like there are people that influenced your life in a unique way, even if it doesn't seem like it's gonna be changing your life. Those people are really important. That you can't really control for, right? Is the quality of your teacher or the quality of, uh, you know, important figures in your life. Yeah. The third is luck. And that I think to the point you, I think you Im imply, and I think that's fair. Um, we live in the society that tells us that if you work hard and you do these things and you're successful and that alternatively, if you don't work hard, you will fail and that's on you. So when we see people fail, we just assume they didn't work hard enough. That might not necessarily be true. So it's like, that, that's an interesting premise here on you know, this path dependency of like this dichotomy of if you do this, you do this. Right. If you do this, this happens. See, I, I, don't, I don't believe that hard work means anything, right? Mm -hmm. I've seen uh, housekeepers who, I mean, like go 10 hours, 12 hours a day, mm -hmm. they work their butts off mm -hmm. and they're making, you know, five bucks an hour, so to speak, 10 bucks, mm -hmm. whatever the minimum yeah. nowadays. And I see CEOs who do absolutely nothing all day, mm -hmm. right? Who make massive amounts of money. Yeah. So I don't believe that it's, it's uh, equal hard work for, for outcome, right? Yep. It, it's what 
you create as value. It's how much value you're providing to the mm -hmm. world, mm -hmm. right? So the value you provide to the world is going to depend on your personality, as you said. It's going to depend on your skill set, your, you know, um, your history, but all, but mostly your mindset, skill set. Isn't that correct? It is, and again, also um, the degree of understanding systems. So this is the other part, like what you're talking about from you know the welcoming. Right. I view the welcoming as also a education on how do you navigate. Uh, I think about my parents in the first two years, they were trying to figure out the DMV. Uh, I think everyone struggles with the DMV in some way, but imagine you've come from this conflict and you've been in transit and now you're here and you have some sort of social network or you're working through, but then they're like, oh, you have to get a driver's license. I'm like, what, what is that? <laughs> How does that work? So there's also like the quicker one can pick up the system. Right. And as we talked about, I think um, the create the really gifted creatives in this space learn the system, maximize what that looks like, and then break it. Right. I think that's where it gets really interesting. When you're starting in a position of the basics, you're not talking about breaking systems just yet. Right. So I think anything you can do to, again, expedite the ability to um, get people administratively in the points you talk about with this, you know, this hierarchy. That is helpful uh, because it will help for people's transition um, to not feel like they don't belong here, or at least you pretend that you don't want, you, you pretend you belong here. So belong here, mm -hmm. an interesting phrase. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I'm, I'm a firm believer that I should have the free ability travel about the universe as I see fit, mm -hmm. right? I don't think I should have to have a passport. I don't think that there should be borders of any kind. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, so let me play, I'm going to play this out. Like, yeah, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. I don't think there should be any limits to me traveling around the globe. I look on a world view of earth from space and there aren't any of those you know, barriers or lines that we've put onto the globe. Except the Great Wall. You can see the Great Wall from space. Well, yes, you can see the Great Wall, but that still doesn't delineate yeah. the country. It only delineates yeah. one, right. one place. But mm -hmm. the, the point is, is that this is Earth, right? We all belong if we live. If we mm -hmm. exist, we belong on this Earth. Mm -hmm. And so stopping people from traveling, creating all these borders, what does that do psychologically to somebody's mind, right? I have a friend in uh, London right now, and he had to get permission from the government to fly out of London to come to the US mm -hmm. because of COVID, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there would be a $7,000 fine, mm -hmm. okay? in order to travel around the country, around the globe, around whatever. Sure. He had to get permission. I think that that's wrong. You've been to 85 countries, mm -hmm. right? You've traveled the world. You have seen, I'm sure, more amazing things than 99% of all people because you've been to more places than, all, you know, most people have 
like like we said before, never lost their block, never got off their block, let alone traveled 85 countries. So what do you think of belonging to the universe, belonging to Earth, right? <clears throat> belonging yeah. in general and how this whole issue can get alleviated if we stop the nationalism thought process. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to react really quickly about um, some insights when you travel to different countries. I have two universal principles, and then we'll talk about the nationalism question that you raised. Uh, the first is in the travels I got to experience and see with all the different people. Um, principle number one that I found is that regardless of where I went, who I met, how I met, what I saw, the people who had the least always gave the most. That's irrespective of nationality, irrespective of label, gender, you name it. And that was incredibly powerful. And from a humanist perspective, like just very inspiring, mm -hmm. especially in places of the most hardship. I found people to be absolutely the most resilient, the most resistant to um, negativity, um, but also willing to sacrifice in a way that was I, I, almost, almost inhuman in some ways. Second principle, the more I travel, the more I missed home. And there's something about home that is important. I struggle to understand what was it about home that it was. Was it, was it air conditioning? Was it my cereal in the morning? Was it the ease of driving on the right side of the road? What was it? And what I concluded was it was a sense where I didn't have to constantly translate in my head a situation or a scenario. And I think when you're, what you're talking about is from a big picture perspective, right. when you talk about these barriers or borders or labels, you're talking about haves and have nots. And you're talking about people that are deemed X and people that are deemed Y. And it's, it's never done in a way that's done with rigor, right? It's just a label, right? It's based on what you talked about. It's based on a nationality or a passport, or it's based on a classification. It's not based on the individual, right? Mm -hmm. With rare exception, like your friend is a rare exception to get that exemption, for example, largely based by guile in relationships. Yeah, but I mean, he's spoken in front of parliament in the United yeah. Nations. So he's he's got, he's been a guest on this show. I mean, that yeah. will get him well, won't get him anything, Jeff. But. <laughs> <laughs> Besides the cosmic karma of it. Cosmic karma. <laughs> cosmic karma. But but to your point though, uh, you know, I do think the nativism part is dangerous because it 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 irrationally um, puts people into intellectually lazy buckets. That is dangerous from from a not just from an everyday life perspective, but from a policymaking perspective, right? And, um, you know, as you know, the, the government, um, there might be well-intended uh, actions or options, but implementation is always the question. And then there's always the exception to the rule that is the question. And so it can be really hard to right-size solutions for the most people possible, understanding that it's far from perfect. But fundamentally, one of the issues that I see here is you know, policymakers that use rhetoric to score political points, mainly campaign dollars, to then advance their own personal interest mm -hmm. without actually doing good for the others around them. 
right. that is, um, and maybe that's human nature. I, I don't know. We can debate that. I would argue it's not because I've seen the most giving people on planet earth. So it's hard, it's hard to see the difference, but, um, unfortunately in the system we're in Ari, it's very much driven on, there's only so much pie and I'm going to claim the pie for my people versus, um, some of us believe that actually you can go in the kitchen and make pie and we'd all be better off. So it's an interesting plenty, debate yeah, question. There's, yeah, there's plenty of pie. I, I always say to yeah. somebody who thinks that there's a lack of anything in the, uh, universe, universe. I say count, count a handful of sand grains, mm -hmm. just a handful, yeah. just count them. See if you yeah. can, yeah. if you can't, you probably don't have a, a lack in the world, right? Mm -hmm. How about counting the hairs on your head? Can you count how many hairs are on your head or pores are on your skin, right? We don't have a lack of for anything. In fact, we have an abundance of so much. Yeah. Part of what I feel is like going to a restaurant where there's a menu mm -hmm. that is five pages versus a one page menu, right? Yeah. One causes anxiety. The other cause, you know, creates ease. I yeah. only have these choices. Yeah. This is all that I can do. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas the universe right now is the smorgasbord. We have this thing called the internet that yeah. allows you to have a buffet of all you can eat of yeah. your own topic. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like for me, I'm the kind of person who gets a little piece of everybody's right. And I want a little, I want to try a little bit of everybody. So I don't get stuck in my own thoughts. Yeah. Right. Well, also you don't get stuffed either. Right. So you get to enjoy all the taste without having to deal with the coma after. So that's a smart strategy, by the way. Right. But that's, that's, that's how I like my people. Yeah. You know, diverse. Yeah. That's how I like, that's how I like, um, my life is to have yeah. diversity, to have levels, but, but to go. Well, I also have to say different. And I would also say difference. Right. Right. But because I, I, one of the killers that we were talking about with nativism is people just all go in their corners. Right. And that creates groupthink and groupthink is a killer. That's the thing that we need to be breaking. And I'm really, uh, I really admire uh, the way you sort of look at life in that you want to be exposed to as many things as possible. Right. Not as little. Yeah. Cancel culture sucks. Yeah. Let's just get it out. Like anybody who's canceling anybody, you should be ashamed of yourself really like down and dirty you should be ashamed of yourself canceling people canceling things that you have no idea about who they are you never asked them a deep question or found out why and you're canceling them i find it disgusting it's actually like i find that that whole concept completely disgusting anybody who's an american like it's going against the constitution which is free speech the idea of free speech right so Let's just like, I'm just getting that out of my system <laughs> at, at, at the onset, right? Cancel culture sucks. So that being said, what's a solution? So I like solutions. I'm, I'm all about solutions yeah. these days. We, we've talked a lot about problems. Yeah. I want to get to some solutions with you. Okay. So sure. let's go to Afghanistan, for instance. Of course. And what's going on there? Um, you had two tours and you kind of have an insider's perspective. So let's get, 
Sure. I mean, perspective on, on that location. Yeah. I mean, obviously Afghanistan has been in the news. Um, what's fascinating about Afghanistan uh, is it's one of the most complex histories on planet earth. I mean, just where it's located in the world is one of the busier, more complex neighborhoods. You can, you just take a look around the neighborhood. It's busy. Uh, and what I learned from the years I was there, one, one really important lesson, which is super helpful for both empathy, but also humility, is the longer you're in a place, the less you understand. And I think that's the case in many countries in many parts of the world. Unpack that, explain that. So there's layers of complexity. And let's say, you know, you want to understand the United States. So you stay here for a semester or you stay here for a couple of weeks. All right, you have a good handle. You stay here five years. What did you really learn? Oh my goodness, there is way more to unpack than one thought. That's very much the case in a foreign country that is in a conflict, an active conflict zone. Right. And you're trying to figure out how do we promote better relations? How do we uh, you know, ensure more prosperity and economic development? How do we build things? And also more importantly, how do we get rid of the bad guys? Which, by the way, there's that construct of good guys, bad guys, which we can talk about that. Um, the, good, the great part about that experience, two things. One, uh, I got to be outside of the capital for lots of parts of it. And that's helpful because the country isn't just the state capital or the nation capital. Just like if you look at the United States, right? Not, you know, there's Washington and there's everything else. Everything else is quite different than Washington. Very much the case in Kabul and everywhere else. And understanding that the local differences matter, but more importantly, the local sensitivities, the local people, the local constructs are different. That helps you get a sense of what's possible. And the only way I could do anything, Ari, was with hiring local people who were invested in trying to promote a better hold country. On one, oh, yeah, hold please. on one second. I, I'm going to pause you. Yeah. Jeff, I'll be right back. I just got to do something real quick. Yeah, of course. Sorry about that. I, uh, my ex is coming to pick up stuff for my son. So understand, understand that's complexity. Yes. All right. So where were we? Uh, we were talking about Afghanistan. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I was, I guess to say, um, when you, if you want to be successful in a country like that, you need to have local buy-in and you need to have local staff who are committed to building a very different country. 
Um, that's not an easy sell. But when you do have folks who are interested in um, stronger prosperity or having a closer Western alignment with the world, um, when they're all in, you're all in. Here's the thing, they make a choice. That choice isn't just a job decision. That's a life and death decision. That's the difference, Ari. So if you choose to support the Americans, like just like how my parents supported the Americans, right? if you don't win, you lose. And that's what unfortunately has been the case here in the last six weeks uh, following the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan. And I think we can agree 20 years is a very long time. And we can agree that 20 years, um, what did that give us? That's, those are fair, valid, thoughtful, important questions that we should, we should and absolutely need to learn from. But speaking at a human level, um, knowing that the vast majority of my local staff, people that made sure I was okay, made sure our troops were okay, that they're not gonna be okay now, that is crushing to me because they're the unlucky ones, the ones that won't make it to the United States. And 46 years ago, my parents were the Afghans. And so I feel a tremendous sense of both heartbreak, guilt, and shame, knowing that we couldn't do everything we really could do. Um, you'll hear, Ari, people say that, oh, we did the best we could. It could have been way worse, you know. Right. And listen, I would love to go down the multiverse to determine the other scenarios. I'd love to. But the reality is in the universe you and I live in today, there are family members of my former staff that have already been killed. Or people are hiding in a hole in the ground or deciding that which land border are they gonna cross over? That's the questions right now. And that's, that's a difficult thing to accept um, for me. Putting aside the strategic questions, which we can talk about, of course, that's, that, that is well-deserving, but just at a human level, um, it's something I haven't been able to shake. I don't sleep very well, if I to be honest with you. I tried to do the best I could and continue to try um, to support visa applications, whatever the, case might be through our process, which is a 14-step process. And it's, it's hard to know that um, even the greatest, most powerful country in the history of the world still can't get this stuff right. So I'm going to unpack a little bit because the humani humanity part, right? So let, mm -hmm. let's, let's just kind of mm -hmm. talk about that in a way that is more of a strategic thing, right? Of course. So, so we're in a country 20 years. Mm -hmm. What were we doing there and what should we have been doing there? Right. These are the, th those are the two questions that yep. I ask, like what Great were questions. we doing yep. and what could we have been doing differently or better or whatever? Cause mm -hmm. the way I see it and I, I say it on the show all the time is we made this shit up. We could do better. So mm -hmm. there's not a single thing on the planet that we've created as humans that can't be improved upon or optimized mm -hmm. more. Yep. So I, I try to take out the judgment, mm -hmm. just put in, okay, what are the facts? So yep. what did we do and what should we have been doing to be more optimized? And then the last question on that is, 
people who are extremists, are they ever going to not be extremists? And if so, what are the things that we're doing to cause them to not be extreme? Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the $64,000 question, among other things. Actually, we'll call it $2 trillion because that's how much it costs in Afghanistan. $2 trillion question. So the first question of what were we doing there? I mean, the whole point of being there was to ensure that terrorists or extremism would not be able to attack the United States homeland and soil. That was the original cause and effect, right? 20th anniversary of 9-11 just happened. The whole idea is we were going to go to these places of safe harbor against the bad guys. We're going to kill all of them. And then they'll never mess with us again. That was the idea. So that's like phase one, right? Well, here's the thing. Phase two became, oh, well, okay, that's done. Now what? And um, you had two challenges with this. There was sort of the school of thought of, oh, we should build democratic institutions and shared economic values and alignments in a place we have no idea of understanding. Right. That's a challenge. Um, And then the second piece of that was, oh, by the way, we'll do this, we'll review it every year. So it's not 20, one 20 year war, it's 21 year wars. That's how I viewed it. Mm -hmm. And guess what? When you have the handoff from one to another, it takes time to, it's like Groundhog's Day. And that's what unfortunately happened. Uh, And regardless of what the troop numbers were or the casualties or the strategic value of X or Y, it just did not change the fact that there was not a clear North Star of how we were going to do what we're going to do and what was success. So the second point, right? The what can we've done better? What is success? Number one, defining success so you can meet success and move on. Fundamentally did not happen. And And it's shocking because you would think the politicians would understand that you need to- So there was no, no end goal. Not, not cited uh, with consensus. Okay, right? so no analytic that we could measure nope. that says nope. that is success. No, nope. That doesn't uh, seem like, like, a, like military intelligence to me. Uh, no, I mean, listen, if, if success is have superiority in the air or on the ground, we're gonna do that. That's not the issue. The issue is after all the bombs and toys. Right. That is the issue. Listen, no one's going to doubt American military superiority. No, but uh, there, what I'm saying is that there was no target. There was no goal. You're shooting a gun at nothing. Also, how do you shoot? And this is the challenge. How do you shoot a gun at ideas? How do you shoot a gun at better governance? Right. This is a fundamental challenge. What we were talking about, about the Maslow's hierarchy earlier. You know what people really wanted? They wanted things to function. And the Afghan government, the United States and Western allies were supporting, were not doing the basics. Some of that is incompetence. Some of that is massive corruption. Some of that is a lack of capacity. Some of it was lack of will. All of those things are a recipe for people saying, you know what, maybe these Taliban people aren't so bad. So the point you brought up very thoughtfully, extremism. So is it extremism or just wanting the basics? What is it? And there are some folks like, uh, you know, the horrible people that murdered our troops uh, in the evacuation. Those folks are, those folks are definitely, there's nothing you can give them or sell them, right? That's, that's, a, that's a very different premise. That's unfortunately something that usually ends with a bullet. But 
for the vast majority of the locals and communities, even most of Taliban forces are probably thinking, you know what, I just want to have a place where I can raise my family, I can have money come in, and I can do the basics. And that basics would be ensuring that my kids have a better life than me. Kind of sounds like, you know, what my parents were thinking about when they came here. So this inability to deliver was going to be the downfall. And in 20 years, they couldn't deliver, therefore we couldn't deliver. And without any metric for success, we were destined for failure. That's what happened. Okay, so I don't know that I agree that um, people just want to survive and have the basics. Like the Taliban, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? If they were to do Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing right now, Mm -hmm. not hurt anybody, Mm -hmm. not assume their control yep they would probably have the basics depends i think people want control yeah and that control gives them a sense of safety and that sense of safety just like any gang on any block in south central or you know or anywhere else chicago doesn't matter any gang any mob any mafia any 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 family of people that choose a certain way of living to be a violent way of living it's not just about survival it's it's about control well that's so i will premise and say this that that it's really important to distinguish the taliban is not a um is not a monolith so when you say the taliban i mean that's like it's a lot of different groups right it's more of a federation that might be a better way to describe them. And the point you raise about power and control. Yeah. That's at the top. That's at the top. If you're talking rank and file, it's a little different. Um, You know, you'll hear stories of Taliban folks asking about, you know, what it's like in Australia. You know, it's a very interesting dynamic, right? They've been fighting for 20 years. That's all they know. And they're talking about, Hey, what, you know, do you think we can go to Australia? It is a fascinating question. Um, But to your point, yes. Um, it gets back to um, who's in power and then the accumulation of power and resources, yes. But if we're talking the everyday person who is, uh, you know, just trying to figure things out, I think it's a little different. But, but so, so, so then we get to my, to my, my big premise uh-huh. right, is silence is a bully's best friend. So we got to get loud, right? Mm-hmm. So what it sounds like, if I break it down to the smallest point, mm-hmm. is it? It sounds like the bully in the in the schoolyard, right? Whether the bully in the schoolyard wants control over the kids for lunch money, mm-hmm. or the Taliban or the Federation wants mm-hmm. control over its people. Yep. So it creates a dialogue that incites its people, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It still is a bully. So the question that I have is, why do we let the bullies win? We let the bullies win because we are convinced that um, there's no other way or option, right? Um, To your point too, um, because if you're just looking at the numbers, the the majority, it's a silent majority, right? In these places, why don't they just overthrow them? Right. I think that's the question. Exactly. That's, that's, that's really, yep. that's what you're asking. Right. The question is why does it, why do we allow 
that to happen? Well, it's similar to, I think, what I see um, with bystanders in general, right? So, you know, you see something horrible happen and then people just stand around, right? Let's say there's a car accident. Not always, but uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, two weeks ago, I was walking back from a work meeting and someone got into a really bad car accident. Um, and so I call, I, I call 911. You know what's crazy is no one else thought to do that. There are about 20 people. And these are all folks of a variety of life. This is in Washington, DC. You have to assume people have phones and this sort of stuff, right? Why is it that somebody doesn't do something? And so it's a really interesting question of like, you know, from a, an actor or a um, decision maker perspective, like what compels people to go outside of their bubble, outside of their world, do something much bigger to potentially put themselves to exposure or risk, right? And the game theory of it, in theory, is that if everybody does it, they're in a better position, right? right? And in theory, in this case, we can get help for someone who was in the bad car accident. Yeah, you got 30 kids or you got 30 kids in a class. Yeah. One is a bully. So 29 of them says, hey, we're not going to be bullied by you. That's right. You, you can you could be our friend, but we're not going to be bullied by you. That's right. Um, Fuse the situation, right? Yeah, some of that, too, is a question of, um, you know, who's really the boss here? And if you have um, conditions where the teacher is not around. Maybe that is more likely to happen. So I mean, using your schoolyard analogy. Right, but in the schoolyard analogy, right, you got the principal and the teachers, right? That Those are the bureaucracies. Yeah. It's like, it's like to me, it's like uh, Hamas and uh, the Palestinian government and the PLO, right? Okay. They're all different organizations, but it's like the superintendent, the district teacher, and the- <laughs> <laughs> And the school board, and the school, school board. board. Throw right? the school board in there and too, so I got it. All those people are the people who are fighting and all these students are the people who are getting the um, brunt of yeah. the fighting. They're getting yeah. they're getting screwed because of these people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's where I go. Like, how do we get? And just in general, in society, mm -hmm. how do we get people? And you know, you're you're part of the homeland security. You you've I'm sure been part of some peace talks of some sort. But how do we get people? to stop going against their own self-interest and to rise up and say, hey, we could do peace. There's enough of us to make it peaceful. You don't wanna be peaceful, but. Yeah, the first thing I would say is so many of us need the validation to do so. It's really interesting. Like if someone told you, hey, Ari, I need you to do this for all of us. I think you would do it. If you sort of sat and thought about it and said, you know what, this is in all of our interests. But in these sort of situations where there's not a natural leader, it's very hard. And so it gets back to like this principle of how do you become a better bystander, which then allows you to act? How do you act? And um, I want to think that you and I in that situation, we will look around and say, hey, we're going to take the bull by the horns, we're going to do this. But it's not always the case. And in the Afghanistan context, there's long-standing history, long, long-standing history of Previous conflicts, battles won and lost, but usually a history that says, hey, the writing's on the wall, let's acquiesce now so we can all live the fight another day. That is a longstanding history as well. So there are some of these like cultural historical forces that are at play here. So that's maybe something beyond the schoolyard, because I guess it's based on where the schoolyard is. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, just, I love having the discussion about, you know, what, what human nature is because I don't think it changes between country to country or civilization to civilization as much as we think it does. Hmm. I think cultural, yeah, we have certain cultural differences Wings. based on how much we've uh, technologically grown in, in our civilization, right? So mm-hmm. U.S. has the landmass to create lots of uh, manufacturing and, you know, things like that. So we have a lot of technology that we've created because our landmass has allowed that. Uh, a lot of other countries haven't built those. So they're still living in a more tribal, you know, situation. Well, and I would say too, I mean, if you're talking about geography, right, it helps to have two oceans. If you have two oceans, you're probably thinking about things differently from a security perspective, right? right. Um, so that's, that's fair. That's fair. So we're going to go into some other topics. All right, so Asian hate. Mm. You and I talked about this a little bit. Yep. I'm going to break it out into just hate in general because yep. I kind of I kind of feel like it doesn't matter if you're Irish, Jewish, black, Latino, Asian, mm-hmm. right? There's always somebody who's hating on somebody. Mm-hmm. And usually it's a lot of people hating on one person or one group of people. Yep. But it doesn't really matter which group. Depends on where you live. It's everywhere. When I was in Greece, it was the Albanians, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, the Albanians are coming in and taking our jobs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so everybody's got their Mexicans, so to speak. Yep. The people that they consider to be entering and taking. So let's talk about the hate and the sure. lack yeah, I mean, if we talk about hate broadly, uh, this is actually a great starting point. Um, the FBI recently released their hate crime report. Uh, last year was the highest year of hate reported hate crime in 12 years. And that's among all groups. Uh, but it was interesting because there's a significant outlier with Asian Americans. So if you're talking about like who's the latest to get picked on, it's Asian Americans. But it's not to say that other groups aren't being picked on. And it's not to say that Asians have never been picked on and they're suddenly being noticed, right? right? Um, but um, it, it was very starkly, if you, if you look at data and evidence, there was a stark outlier. And that was certainly in Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders throughout the country, even in a place like, and people will say, well, you know, maybe that's just, um, you know, places that aren't as sensitive to groups. Well, in California, which is a pretty diverse place, hate crime was up over 100% year over year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is a place where 40 million people from pretty much everywhere. It's, it's majority minority. Um, the longest place where you have Asian Americans, the longest history of Asian Americans in the US, right? Chinese, Japanese came here in the 19th century, mm-hmm. railroads, economy, that sort of thing. So really close, longstanding histories with different groups. And they had it pretty bad <laughs> during that time. So um, I think big picture, something was happening. Uh, it certainly didn't help that there was rhetoric that said that viruses came from certain places that probably didn't help. Right. And, you know, I'd like to think that words don't matter, but they, they do because words are the, the thing you can't kill. Like we talked about, right. Mm-hmm. You can't like point a gun to an idea. Right. Uh, and if there's an idea that says this group is the reason for your detriment or your discomfort, and that's why you have to wear a mask. 
Mm, and I think it's very complex. And as we just talked about, there, there's always underlying things, longstanding past. Right. And those fissures with enough pressure become chasms. And this was a trend we saw across the country and it certainly happened to me. It's not, you know, when acts of hate happened to me in the last 18 months, it wasn't new. It was just more blatant, right? It used to be like, hey, your English is really good. Or, hey, um, can you see, like with your eyes, with the shape, can you see, like, do you see better on the sides? Or like, hey, do you eat dog? It's that sort of stuff where it's like, I can laugh it off, right? Um, a recent story I'll give you that happened to me, two guys went up to me and were like, hey, hey, Buddha, um, you know, can we rub your belly for good luck? And the uh, thing is, is it's, it's, all right, this is not the first time I've been asked oh, this, no, so I, I, have an, I have an answer. Buddha <laughs> is my nickname. It has been since I was <laughs> Well, you and I share that then. So, you know, I've got these, these big earlobes. Yeah, me too. Me too. I've been told that they're Buddha earlobes. I think they're lovely. I love your earlobes. So, but, but, you know, I have a response to this answer and that is, listen, I'm not a genie. So if you rub my belly, you don't get any wishes. And as an Asian American, you're taught your entire life to diffuse tension, to blend in quickly, right. because the alternative is the communist government will kill you. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you come from a position of gratitude, right? You're happy to be here. You're just happy to be here. You just want to live your life, but you live in your life having to sort of know the cost of doing business of existing here is dealing with that stuff, right? right? Having people ask you about strange things from time to time, right? Including what does a dog taste like? So, you know, and that's something as early as age nine, age 10. Yeah, I had, yeah. I had similar being Jewish, you know, I was yeah. called all kinds of things. I was told that I killed, that I personally killed Jesus and I shouldn't be alive. Like, hmm. Literally, my Crazy entire time. life was, you know, grew up being told you're Jewish, you're, you're Jesus killer, you know, and then I started practicing Buddhism and now I'm a Jewish Buddhist that that was even worse. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, because they don't know how to box you then. Right. And then I started studying the Quran. I mean, I was seven, eight, nine, 10 years old, 12 years old, and I'm studying these religions, Druidism, paganism, I'm studying all this stuff and I get labeled. So I understand. Let's go back. Asian American uh, concentration camp, so to speak. We had yep. we had those well, in our country. Internment. Yeah, um, Ari, when we had internment built, in built, the U.S. Right. We built, you guys built the railway system in the mm -hmm. early 1900s, and late 1800s mm -hmm. that, uh, that allowed for us to be able to travel the world, right? Or travel yeah. the country. Hey, and Ari, to your point on the, the internment camps during World War II, did you see any, did you hear of any Italians or German Americans that got interned? No. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the difference does matter, right? Right. No, yeah. the difference absolutely matters. Yeah. Sorry, my mic was coming off. No, good. I'm like holding up the mic. Hello. <laughs> this is how we do it. This hey, you're getting your reps in. Anyway, I'm just going to hold this for the rest of the time because <laughs> it's come apart. Yeah, I know. Sounds like you need. It's time for a new mic. Yeah, we just need to change the arm out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we're talking about Asian hate. Yeah. So, so um, 
And hate in general. Hate in general. Hate in general. And, you know, but part of what I wanted to talk about with regards to Asian hate mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. and foreign hate specifically yep. mm-hmm. is the concept of human trafficking. Okay. Part of Homeland Security. So yep. you have a little bit more inside track yeah. on yeah. human trafficking. But this seems to be a an issue of color, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really hear too much except for maybe Russian, Ukrainian. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You in, in whiter countries. But it also seems to be something that is perpetuated by the people who live there, not necessarily the outsider white ghost devil that is coming yeah. in and doing it. So yeah. let's yeah. talk about that a little bit. Sure. I mean, if you're talking about, so I would say illicit trade in general, uh, yes, is perpetrated by local economic interests. So let's start with that. There's a marketplace for that, right? So whether it's heroin and opium or in trafficking in persons, there is a market for that. And that's part of the reason why it happens, right? So just acknowledging the global trends for vice <laughs> is, is profitable, especially when it's banned, right? So from a contraband perspective, it's even more um, lucrative for some of these groups. To your point, it is a global phenomenon. It is not bound by borders in that way. Uh, you're right, it's mainly global South driven and in you know communities that are not of European descent, with the exception of Eastern Europe, there's some stuff you'll see, particularly in Moldova, Ukraine. I mean, I would say more underserved parts of those parts of the country, right? Um, and so there are elaborate efforts of logistics that happen because everyone's incentivized to find the best conduits for this. Um, and that's irregardless of regime. But one of the big things is, uh, you know, that's used as a pretty strong ploy is they talk about it as an employment opportunity for somebody. And that employment opportunity turns into forced imprisonment. That's the scenario that you hear quite a bit, especially if it's someone that's like 16, 17, 18, and they're trying to provide for their family in a situation that there are very few avenues for them. Sorry, I'm I'm listening and I'm fixing at the same time. Yeah, no, no, of course. Um, <laughs> Sorry, you had this look like you wanted to ask me questions. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm ready for the question. Yes. Yeah, so so let's let's like talk about the so we have an economic um, reason typically mm-hmm. in lower income areas that breed the idea of human trafficking, and so um, who are the people who are doing the taking? Who are the people who are doing the trafficking? Sure. So if you're talking about the, if you're talking about the syndicate, right? So it's, I would say these are pretty elaborate, sophisticated organizations, federations, if you will, of people who um, have a hierarchy, bosses, um, turf, incentives, and bonuses. Um, and the folks who are in the taking business are your sort of rank and file and they're incentivized because of their own survival questions. And there's a triangle to the top. Like we've actually talked about in some of the themes that we discussed, right? There's a power dynamic and people are using that as a opportunity as a survival mechanism. 
Um, and it doesn't have to be even in the trafficking per persons that we're talking about. It's also the trafficking of, of people to try to make it to other countries, right? Uh, specifically, you know, the coyote types, right? And let's say in Latin America to get people to the United States, uh, there's economic incentives. And uh, I would say these are not exactly people that, you know, um, uh, how should I say, have strong lawyers <laughs> or, um, you know, you can trust a handshake deal. And it's usually an exorbitant amount of money that's then leveraged uh, so that the person then becomes not just imprisoned physically, but imprisoned in, in their mind that this is sort of, there's no way out. Right. You've already so, gone as far as you go. So the, the, the uh, crooks of the Asian mm -hmm. hate started with the shooting in the massage parlor. Being that I'm a sports therapist and I've been a massage therapist and all that mm -hmm. stuff, I had, I had a reaction to this. Yeah. And because I know that the majority of these massage parlors are actually the home for home, uh, for, for people who have been human trafficked from China, from Asia in some respects. Um, it hit me a little harder because I'm like, you know, these people are literally here. They're living typically inside of the, the places, um, that they work yeah. in like, you know, caught kind of beds or whatever. And, uh, and so that kind of got my interest. Right. And so I just want to talk about that part of, of mm -hmm. what it is that people, if we're, if we're, you know, the citizenry, right. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for ways to help with Homeland security, with human trafficking, with, you know, stopping this stuff. What are the things that people can look for? Yeah. Um, so first, so I would say in terms of, um, you know, some of the Asian hate, I would say it, it goes further back. I think to your point, um, you know, the shootings in Atlanta, um, I think it really shocked so many people because of what you talked about, this realization that these were very marginalized women in situations of likely abject hopelessness. And what does that say about our society that we sort of nonchalantly look away, right? Right. Oh, I mean, we, we literally were, we don't nonchalantly look away. We, we see a neon sign that says open and it's a massage place. And we pretty much know that that is a happy ending place, uh, you know? <laughs> I mean, in the industry, at least, we kind of stay away from neon signs that mm -hmm. stay open. But we have the Homeland Security, we've got the government, we've got police, we've got all kinds of things. And in LA, I remember when you go to get a massage license, there was one set of inspectors who yep. were licensing the massage for everybody else. And then one set who was inspecting for the Asian American or Asian massage parlors that were basically turned into sex shops. And so it's a systemized thing as well, right? Yeah. And, and to your point, right, there are some things that are, um, folks are incentivized in some ways to look at other parts of it rather than the true nature, what you're talking about. So, you know, they'll talk about it from a regulatory perspective, right. right? They'll talk about it from a taxation issue. They'll talk about it from a health inspection question, right? Um, one 
one thing that, well, two things first, and I know it sounds really, it seems so unlikely in the world we live in, but you'd be, you'd be surprised just how important it is to raise the issue with your local person, your local elected official, because it's so rare that they will get an inquiry about this. I mean, think about the inquiries that your local politicians person gets. It's usually about the trash or about like a noise of a complaint or violation. But if you say something like that, the thing you're talking about with the neon sign, actually it does stand out because that's not your normal complaint. So to the point we talked about, if it's a see it, say it. Uh, and it is surprising how little people are willing to do that, partly because they're scared of having to deal with more of a time suck or more paperwork that comes with that being a good citizen. So that's, I mean, honestly, one part about it and having a real discussion with people in your community about the subject. Again, it's something people would argue there's a million things to worry about, right? Um, the second thing, and this is a group I've really admired, um, a group called the Polaris Project, which works on trafficking in persons. Um, they have a pretty strong trafficking hotline and other services that they provide, especially for people that have recently um, got out of that situation. And that's really the, the hard issue, right? The, the one issue is the root issues. The root issues are really tough. But if you're talking about the individual from the human level getting out, how do you put them in a situation where they can acclimate and um, integrate, especially knowing that there's strong um, trauma? Right. That might come from that, from that exploitation. What are the incentives that come through Homeland Security for actually policing homeland, uh, you know, human trafficking? I mean, getting rid of the sweatshops that are in the U.S. Getting what is it? What are the incentives for Homeland Security to actually go and do this stuff? Well, I mean, there's first and foremost the <laughs> the political incentives. The political incentives, and just being snarky about it, the press release is really nice. They should be doing more of that. They're not. Um, the big challenge, honestly, Ari, is scale. It's um, the question of if you remove one, what happens, right? And it will most likely, because of economic incentives, just become harder to get to. So it's like, okay, you knock out one nest and then five others happen, right? So before you have an activity, before the government says, okay, we're gonna work on this issue, it's, we're, we're, we're gonna have a war against sex trafficking or war against trafficking persons issues, fundamentally, you need to commit the resources, the time, the investment, and frankly, um, trust in a community. Because at the end of the day, it's the community folks who understand really the ins and outs and who's, who's a real barrier, who's a real player. Because the government coming in, I mean, they don't know Adam from Eve. Right. Right. And so you do need the local buy-in to have that disruption. Happen. Sounds the same as Afghanistan and needing the local. It's a, well, it's a human, it's a, it's a community, it's a universal community question, right? It's um, people coming from the outside coming in, it's going to affect your life. Uh, who's going to, who wants change to happen? How do you work together to do it? And how do you do it where everyone is safe? Right. very hard, especially if there's shadowy players involved who uh, have firepower and incentives to make sure you disappear. Um, that is pretty scary. The government will say, we have other fish to fry too. So that's the other thing. The government say, hey, we're focused on cybercrime. We're focused on um, you know, um, insider trading. 
you know, things like this, which, I mean, from an economic perspective, I mean, those are pretty important things to take on. From a human level, uh, it's largely because at the end of the day, these are the most vulnerable people and they're not prioritized. Right. So then we'll take it away from the government's rules and responsibilities, right? We put it on the people. What can the people do who might be passionate about these things? What can they do specifically to end this when they see it, to, to recognize it when they see it, et cetera? Well, I think one thing is to have open conversations about it. So like from what I see, there's very little active discussions in the public space on this topic. I don't know what you've seen. I haven't seen much of it. And maybe it's because we're just overwhelmed. I happen to have two friends who own two separate human trafficking nonprofits. Yeah, I think that's an exception, I would say. I I am, you know, it it becomes on my mind. When I see Afghanistan and the refugees coming over, I think of human trafficking. Yeah, of course. What they're going to be subjected to. Yeah. If, if they come over and we don't say, welcome to our neighborhoods, let me get you a job, let me yeah. help you. If we don't do that, what's going to happen is they're going to become trafficked, right? They're, gonna, they're going to be exploited in some way. So I, I'm looking at it like, where can I see this as a solution that we can, you know, take on directly mm-hmm. now? Yeah. Because, you know, I'm tired of, I'm tired of talking about problems. Yeah. Really tired about talking about problems because I don't see enough people actually doing the solving of them. They're talking a lot. They're, they're making all kinds of plans in their heads, but there's nothing being done that's substantial, specific, targeted, that has a buy-in of massive mm-hmm. amounts of people, right? Yeah. That's where I'm, I'm like, where do we go to get this? Whether it's our medical system, whether it's human trafficking, whether it's the environment, whether it's whatever it is, right? We have things that we know for a fact, right? The chemicals that are in our food are causing cancer and killing us, killing our health. Yet we don't take it out of the food. We don't create the incentive, right? If the incentive was that the people needed to be healthy, that's the incentive then everything has to happen in a way to make that happen. And otherwise you don't get paid, right? So you only get paid when the people get healthy in the medical system. Wouldn't that cause all the fraud to disappear? It, it, literally the system would have to morph itself just to fit that one incentive. Same thing I believe with human trafficking, same thing I believe with all these other things. Yeah. There's one thing and it's the incentive that we give it. Yeah. I would say, I mean, I think it's really unique that you have two friends that run um, organizations. I, I mean, what I tell folks is you can take on the issue locally um, or you can sort of raise awareness in broader groups. I find the local part more interesting because that galvanizes people to sort of face what they've always known. Um, the two things that I tell people they could do is number one, you either give the money or two, you donate your time. Your time is way more valuable. So if you donate time, so, you know, there are people at Polaris, for example, that do, you know, work on digital forensics, for example, right? I think it's a fascinating part of how you take on that issue. Um, and then from a political advocacy perspective, what you're talking about with incentives, um, one thing I've seen 
that isn't necessarily done in the way of scale uh, as groups of people come together and advocate for budget line items in their local community to say, hey, we want to have services for this community. And by the way, the federal government will match some of that money, for example, right, through Department of Homeland Security. So there is there is a cost buy-in part. That way, everyone's incentivized. But again, the, the policymaker doesn't hear this stuff generally. So they need to know it's on their radar that it's part of their political scoreboard. So that way, it allows them wins and losses. Mm -hmm. So you have to also create the incentives as well, because they don't have the same awareness or, you know, it's not on their radar politically. Those are a couple of things one could consider. If you're talking about like real brass tacks, I think those are a couple of things. Okay. I like that line items on bills, helping co-sponsor bills, putting. Well, not just bills, I mean, just budget, right? I mean, every municipality has a annual budget, right? Think about it, right? The money it costs to take out your trash or the money it takes to work your parks. Why not have money for your social services that also include this portion, which by the way, will also include Afghan refugee resettlement, which will include Haitian refugee resettlement. Why not also talk about other communities in that as well? I, again, I don't think I don't think there should be a difference between like what is good and what is bad refugees or people in you know moral crisis, right? So then here, so then here's the thing: we have these NIMBYs and we have the YIMBYs. Mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. in my backyard or yes, yeah. in my backyard. Yep. Okay. Let's talk about the consequences of being a NIMBY. Mm -hmm. The benefits and the consequences. Okay. What are the benefits to being a not in my backyard kind of person? Uh, your property value will stay up. Okay. I, I, I say that very cynically, but it's true. Um, this is a universal thing that you see. It could be in California, it could be Florida, it could be Texas, it could be everywhere. People might conceptually say, yeah, you know, these folks have, you know, they have hardship, right? Oh, these homeless folks, they, they have a hard, you know, I want to support them. Just not here. And that is a significant consequence in my mind is part of it is protecting the value of your property or protecting the borders of your school district. Um, I think it's pretty short-sighted, but it's also this perspective of, I want what's best for my local right. people I care about uh, rather than the bigger picture, which is, as a citizen of this country and a citizen of the world, um, we're from X, Y place of means. This is something that is important. What, I'll give you one example. Um, when I was working in California, California has a significant homelessness crisis, right. um, as you might Half know. Half it's, a million. Uh, that's the official count, right? Yeah, the official count. The is official count. Million. That's not the real number. The real number is, I mean, something probably much higher. Yes. But in every conversation I'd have with organizations, people, they're like, yeah, that's a great idea. And by the way, there'd be no cost to them. So no cost to them. Mm -hmm. uh, you would have the land given or you would have a structure given. You would have services provided by service organizations. All of it would be a really interesting ecosystem to, again, ensure that people have their basics. Right. And then people will oppose it on grounds of public safety. You'll hear that on grounds of um, health. Right. You'll hear on health from time to time. Um, you'll hear it from, oh, but that might affect, um, you know, how we do our, our gatherings or like, how do we, how do we ensure there's jobs for them rather than. See that, that seems like a nice question to ask. How do we ensure there are jobs for them? Yeah, I know. The question, <laughs> that, that, the question that I, that I hear 
yeah is they're going to take our jobs not what how are we going to find jobs they're going to take our jobs mm -hmm. they're going to impose their belief system which we already know we don't like that muslim belief system because they're trying to kill us so they're trying to impose our belief their belief system mm -hmm. on us they want sharia mm -hmm. law wherever they go mm -hmm. so we need to fight that that's the that's the dialogue that i hear I live in Florida. I don't live mm -hmm. in California. It's a very different world since I yeah. moved from California to Florida. Yeah. Very different politics, very different kind of mm -hmm. questions that people ask. It's it's almost different. The news channels are different than... Well, Florida is also five states. I mean, if you live in Miami and you live in Tallahassee, it, it might as well be Mars and Venus, right? Yes. Um, I mean, that's, I think that's what makes Florida really interesting. You have people from all sorts of perspectives, from all sorts of histories, with a geography that's very complicated, right? You have the Gulf and you've got the Atlantic. Um, and it's also one of the most prosper, you know, prosperous places mm -hmm. for a variety of unique factors. But also this, I think, interesting mindset of it, it's fleeting which I think is so interesting because actually it's far from it. I think it's, it's got so, it, I would argue untapped potential. Would you agree? Untapped potential for it. There's a lot of untapped potential and there's a lot of, uh, the place is going to be underwater soon. Well, I mean, from a climate perspective, absolutely. Especially if you're talking about the actual earth under the ground. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's, there's that, real that, issues. That is what they're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, people are very concerned long-term of, you know, that, New Orleans is going to be our beachfront property. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, um, adaptation and investments in infrastructure, uh, some of that has started. Uh, but as you can imagine, it's woefully behind. I mean, look at, I mean, you know, you see that story of the horrible building collapse, right? Um, that's, I mean, there's many more of those to come. Um, okay. But I'm going gonna, gonna, gonna to switch positions a little bit. I'm going to okay. ask you a question. Sure. That is always on my mind. Yeah, of course. And that's the, the, the question of politics and government versus private industry. Mm -hmm. And what role each should play. Okay. So I'm in Florida and it's very much a small government state. We, mm -hmm. want, we want as little government as possible. Okay. But then we look at all the things that need to happen mm -hmm. and that would take either government expansion or incentivizing and uh, contracting out, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So where do we combine? Yeah, um, so first I would say fundamentally, there needs to be a very strong understanding of what you're trying to achieve. So let's start with that. Like, even before you talk about like which toy soldiers or, you know, which chess pieces you move, what game are we playing? So what are you trying to address fundamentally? Um, if you're trying to address climate change, for example, let's just use that as an example, climate change. It's, it's, a, it's got a lot of uh, significant issues to come right. in the next 50 years. Is there any one being or actor or thing that's gonna, is, that solves that? Is there a silver bullet to take down that werewolf? I would argue these really transformative challenges, it is a whole society approach. The key question the government has to do, 
this is where the government does play. Is there the convener? The government needs to be the convener because they're elected by people, right? In theory, their power source should be that they're directly elected by the people. In that's theory. in theory, okay? Now you and I both know that's not always the case, that sometimes they're there because of perpetuity. That's a separate issue we can talk about. But the government has to have the tent to bring people in to say, listen, the people elected us to work on XYZ issues. We know it's impossible to solve this issue without everybody doing their part. Like we were talking about earlier about the bystander, right? right. The power is having a place to start, a starting point. Um, in a place like Florida, um, when the leadership doesn't want to take something on, two things happen. Number one, nothing happens. Or two, somebody takes it upon themselves to do something and that has ver a variety of outcomes, yes. right? That's very Florida in my mind, right? Um, and there are some basics. Like I would think, you know, even in a place like Florida, which has a bend of anti-regulation, how much do they care about the Everglades? The answer is a lot. Yes. I think you froze. The make sure that their coastlines are clean can you hear me? Can you hear me now? For a second. Yeah. Okay. But I was going to say, even, you know, in Florida, right? Part of the magic of Florida is its environment. Hold and on. Nope. Again. Nope. Sorry. Okay. No, cool. Try again. Try again. Sorry about that. All good, all good. Sorry, but I, I guess what I was saying um, is in a place like Florida, one of its strongest incentives is its economic prosperity driven significantly by tourism. Right. Tourism that is driven by the fact that Florida is a nice place to visit, largely based on the fact that the environment's really nice. So humidity and the mosquitoes. Minus those two things, you would still pick it versus the winter in Maine. A lot of people do. A lot of people do. Snowbirds, right? Think about the economic consequence of that migration. It's a significant one so that you can have lower taxes, right? The math works in a small government system if, the, if, if you have the math come in in alternate ways, right? Mm -hmm. But what if the environment didn't look the way it did? Then what would it be? You have to change the math. You have to change the formula. So even in a conservative governorship or conservative state legislature, they understand that the quality of their Everglades, the quality of their beach lines is essential for their prosperity. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting dynamic, right? Because, you know, people generally think, oh, deregulation as Republicans. That's not true. It's just the incentives are aligned differently. And it's in their interest to do that. So that's why you will see Republicans in Florida talking about environmental, certain environmental qualities on these issues, largely from the hook you and I were just talking about. Yeah, the only, the only uh, I think, issue I have with that is, is the water quality in Florida is never seeming to be addressed. And- uh, Are you talking about drinking water? The drinking water, yeah. Drinking the, water. The, water, the drinking water is, is so bad yeah. that um, I actually get allergic to it. I, I ended up sneezing. I had to get a filter for my whole- yeah. Well, that's why you have to go to Publix. But also the uh, 
there's, you know, all the anti-aging and an old age medication mm-hmm. has been ionized basically in, in the water. And so we drink parts per million, so many drugs just out of our tap water. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, again, the argument there is it's um, the thing you can't see. So they don't want to take it on. Right. Yeah. Right. But what they can see is the cruise boats going to Florida, right. wanting to hang out on the beach in cocoa. Right. That's what they see. So it's a, it gets back to power, convening, and what's seen as an existential crisis, not just for you know, the economy, but also for their political survival. Okay. So the, right. last, the last question I'm going to ask you is about okay. buy-in. Yeah. Public buy-in. How do you get the public to buy in on the solutions when they're in like fight or flight survival, I've got to just take care of me. I, I'm too anxious. I, you know, like yeah, majority of people, the people who had have the money and can afford it, don't seem to spend too much time talking about it or trying to fix the issues. Right. Yeah. So the people yeah. who it's affecting the most are the people who are in that fight or flight survival mode. Yeah. So how do we get buy-in for them to advocate on their own best behalf? You know, fundamentally, first and foremost, I, if there's an issue that people care about, I always tell them two things. One, have a conversation with someone you care about, about the issue. And I know it seems really mundane, but if you can have a meaningful conversation with someone that doesn't agree with you on everything, uh, and it's someone you care about, and their judgment really matters to you, that's one of the hardest conversations you'll ever have. So just having a baseline. The second part is sharing why it's important to you. Because at the end of the day, people want to belong to something. Like we talked about at the very beginning. It's about belonging. And if you're working towards something far bigger than yourself, I do believe people, if motivated and inspired from a human level, that does drive change. That's a grassroots discussion. So what is it that will, that will produce that fire inside people? Because you can look at it and see mm-hmm. reality. Yeah. The reality is that we have a mass amount of issues, a mass amount of problems, and a mass amount of people going, you did it, and I'm not going to worry about it until you fix what you did. Yeah. Instead yeah. of saying, doesn't matter who fucking broke it. Doesn't That's matter right. who, who, who messed it up. Doesn't matter. It's not optim- optimized. It can be optimized. Let's go optimize it, right? That's where I come from. Like, I, I see the judgment out. But we have, the reality is, is that people see it every single day. They walk by it. They look at it. And they don't yeah. do anything about it. Yeah. So I would say, so I think you still have to anchor with people you care about. Because there's a strength in numbers issue. Like we talked about. How do you take on the bully? You still have to have a strength in numbers issue. So then you need to have to anchor with people you are in relationship with. That you Correct. Have. The second thing you got to do is then align the pressure points. And there's two places for that, right? One is your local leader. Because your local leader, again, is technically endowed by the voter. And they should be the one responsible for that or held accountable because right. they're in the elected position. So once you have groups of people where you can get buy-in and say, hey, listen, it doesn't cost us anything to raise this issue with somebody, but it can cost that person if they don't do anything about it. That's the second thing. The third, um, and this is where we talk about like where does the private sector play? All of us, I'd like, I hope all of us are working for organizations that 
uh, have a civic understanding. They have responsibility in the places they serve and operate, and not just because of taxes, but because it's a part of their ecosystem. You have to raise those issues there as well. I don't see that. I don't see that happening nearly as much. Right? The company CSR says this is what we care about, top down. Guess what? It's just check boxes and checks. Right. That's not actually change. But you know what I found really interesting when I talk to fortune companies is I talk to them about education and alignment across their workforce, not top down. And if you did genuine surveys, like real surveys, mm -hmm. if you did genuine one-on-one -on -one conversations with your managers about, hey, where do you think the company should invest its economic and political might? I think you would get something, what you're talking about much more, especially if it's a company that understands it's, this is more than just good PR, right? Right. This is a, we, we have an influence in a community. It's in our interest to show we have influence anyways, right? Yeah, it's funny. Um, we, we have a company in my town that is $17 billion company a year, mm -hmm. uh, 50,000 employees. Yeah. Um, high tech government contracting company. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went and had a conversation about their healthcare and uh, how they're treating their employees, you know, what system of wellness they have. Mm. They have mm. none. Of course. Zero. Yeah. I mean, once in a while they have, you know, vaccine shots and a bunch of, you know, health insurance questionnaires at a health fair. But With balloons. That, With balloons. That, there's nothing that they're doing for their employees' wellness. And I, I, I look at it like the productivity that goes up, the, the community feel that goes up, the loyalty, the, all the things that yep. happen in a company when you take care of your employees. Yeah. Recruitment and retention. Seems surely. to have like dumped in the last 40 years, mm -hmm. right? Like companies used to be places where you could go and retire. You can't go and retire at a company these days, hardly no. at all. No. So how do we get those people to a place where they feel like they're being honored. So those, those companies, so that's number two. And, and I would suggest that in that number two, there needs to be a lot of discussion with CEOs and with those top-down execs that are, you know, basically yeah. creating the, the problem that they're. Well, I mean, Ari, as you know, it's um, that stuff is strategic questions and bottom line questions. And you know who really can help push that is board members. And so board members have a, a fiduciary responsibility, but also a governance responsibility. Uh, and certainly that's the case when I talk to fortune companies, I always talk to some of their boards about, hey, um, your CSR or ESG portfolio looks like X. Uh, what does that actually mean? Um, so that those are like the true, true stakeholders, right? It's the shareholder, the public to some degree, but the board members are the ones who can light people's hair on fire or not, right? That's who one needs to influence. Um, but to your point, you can make an economic argument that if you don't invest in these things, people just leave and it's way more expensive to retrain people. Absolutely. Right. I think that's fair in itself. Not to mention it diminishes culture in a way where the consumer wants a, a modernized experience, whatever that looks like. Hard to have a modernized experience if morale is garbage. Exactly. That, affects, that affects the delivery of the good or the service, right? Yeah. Number three. Well, Mm -hmm. you went to two we got number three what's number three? Oh, <laughs> the third the third thing with um bringing people together and yeah. what you're gonna do oh yeah 
Well, I was going to say that the third thing is you do have to name and shame. There is a naming and shaming that does have to happen. That luckily, uh, the media landscape is desperate for stories. Um, and guess what? Like, you can talk about the dying of the local media, but people still trust the local media because they're going there for the weather, for the traffic, and how their sports team did. And guess what? If you talk about an issue that re you really care about, you've organized a couple people to do something, it's going to get airtime. Content, hard to find. Especially content that's meaningful content, really tough to find on something that's compelling. It's not rocket science, Ari, <laughs> to, to, to uh, get people together, reach out to the local reporter. They probably need the story more than you do. And, um, you know, really facilitate something. Right. And guess what? Once that happens, PR people have to reach out. The company has to reach out. They have to respond. That's the nature of what they do. So that elevates and amplifies the voice beyond just the, you and I talking about something that sucks. Right, exactly. That's, that's where, you know, my, my whole thing is these days is there's been a lot of talking and complaining and a lot, yeah. not a lot of collaborating to yeah. succeed. And I'm yeah. looking more into how, how do we get to a place where we're not talking anymore, so. yeah. just doing the things yeah. to succeed. Yeah, I mean, you do have to talk to align to what you're trying to achieve. I think you that has to be an iterative process, but you've, you've, there are levers. Yeah, there's there's got to be a time where the talking and complaining has ended mm -hmm. and the acting and doing has begun. Yes, I agree. And yes, you can analyze and review and restructure, analyze, review, restructure, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you got to start somewhere. You got to start doing something. Yep. And, you know, for instance, like we have, I don't know how many bridges that need to be replaced, right? Somebody's no, got to start freaking replacing these bridges. Yeah. It's something it's so simple. It's like simple simple thing. The incentives right now are where my issue lies because the incentives are not in doing things to repair or fix, but in creating things that will become obsolete. Planned obsolescence, doing things that that stop progress from happening, making uh, you know things uh, technologically that can come out tomorrow and not bringing them out for 10 years, right? That kind of thing. Like, I want to stop that stuff. I want people to start moving on their things, doing the things that we have available. It's just shifting that money incentive into a future incentive way. Yeah, and also trying to boil it down into very actionable parts, right? If you're trying to solve a big issue, it can be overwhelming, but you know what my mother says, the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time, right? It doesn't mean you just don't, you know, you don't just get your fork and knife out. I mean, you, you really have to engage, but you have to be thoughtful in how you approach because there's only so much time and you're fighting against these currents. Um, but I think the things that we just talked about in terms of just, I mean, those are low hanging fruit issues. And again, the more local you are, um, the easier it is to pressure because you're, you're, it's an everyday thing. So if you're to leave the audience with a single thought after all of this, what would that thought be? The thought is you can do more than you think. You can always do more than you think. And it isn't, um, if you want to sort of achieve important things, it certainly starts with just having the conversation like the one that you and I have been having, talking to people that maybe don't see everything 100 than you. Right. Get out of your comfort zone a little bit. And I know it can be a little scary, but I promise you, if we all did a better job of doing that, we'd be a much more connected, stronger society. 
and we'd probably be more likely to act on things. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, we're always trying to create a new tomorrow today and activate our vision for a better world. And Jeff, you've been a great uh, help in giving people actionable steps and things and insights that they can do today to do that for themselves. Where can people get a hold of you? Sure. I think the best way you can find me is on Twitter at uh, Jeffrey D. Lee, and I'll we'll make sure to put that in the notes. But I'm so appreciative for the opportunity, Ari. I'm excited about all the great things that are coming today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me.